This is God's Word. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason was receiving them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word's Lord, the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God for his word. Let's bow once more in prayer, ask him to help us understand and obey what we've just read. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday, time together in your house, your day, brothers and sisters in Christ, with your word open in our laps. Lord, we ask that you'll do what you've done so many times before, that you'll meet us here, open to us the scripture. Help us to understand it, and then give us what we need to obey it. Lord, if we can do this, it will be good to have been in the house of the Lord. Good for us, and glory for you. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Now, as far as uh, every now and then, I think it helpful. You might have remembered playing with the train set when you were a kid. Sometimes you back up that engine and connect with the rest of the train in order to move forward. Well, to connect back to last week, if you recall, Paul and a few men had just left Philippi. Philippi didn't have a synagogue. They didn't have 10 Jewish men or they could have had a synagogue. People were saved there and wondrously, but these men had been in trouble. They'd been beaten, they'd been jailed, they'd been released from jail. Miraculously, with an earthquake, chains fell off. The jailer was saved as a result of the whole dramatic event. 
One wonders, though, when we get to the first part of chapter 17, if you have such an inquiring mind that wants to know, what about Amphipolis and Apollonia? They passed right through there. They didn't stop. We're not told. So we'll have to get to heaven and ask that question. Write it down if you want an answer. We're not going to find it in the scriptures. Now, it would make sense that if there were places that the Lord prevented them from going in the previous chapter, we talked about that too, doors that seemed to be closed. Maybe these are just two more closed doors. But there's an open door in Thessalonica. There's an open door in Berea. We're going to look at the two of those, although chapter 17 uh, involves three stops. This is on Paul's second missionary journey. The three stops, Thessalonia, or Thessalonica and uh, Berea, we'd look at today, will leave Athens for next week. But let me reread uh, what we just read a moment ago. Now, when they passed through those two towns, they didn't stop in. They came to Thessalonica. There was a synagogue of Jews there. Paul went in, as was his custom. Three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, here's what we're, we're dealing with today, as we've dealt with in the past few weeks and what we'll deal with in the weeks to come. All of these stops start to sound like the same stop with just a different title and maybe a few different events. Uh, Luke makes no apologies for this. This is the way the history happened. But in order to make sure we pay attention and don't get bored and start thinking about where we're going to eat or what we've got to do this week and make full use of the time we have together under the sound of God's Word, not under the sound of a man's voice, but God's Word through our study. You've got that Word open in your lap as well. We're going to need to search out the handful of details different in this account than from last week and different in this account from next week. Because if, if he's telling us the same story over and over again, but there's little details that are different, there's a reason why he's including the story. Or he could just say, uh, Thessalonica, Berea, same as Philippi. But he doesn't. He tells us some things with some differences. So there's purpose in those differences. And that's, I think, what will be what we take home with us today. As was his custom, he went straight for the synagogue. And we've learned by now, and we'll see as we go on, it didn't always end well. But that was his pattern. And it was a good pattern. Usually, he would go to the city, start in the synagogue, leave a fight. The fight kicks off a riot. And then he goes to jail. Good thing about chapter 17, he avoids jail. Um, we'll see that today in these first two cities. So he's going to have a riot, uh, at least in the first city, not with the second, because they get out of there before it happens. But what did he do in Thessalonica? What's different about this description than the others is that it says for three Sundays, he reasoned with them. That's an important word reasoned with them from the scriptures and if we're good bible students we know they don't have new testaments like we have that we're reading from right now this would be the old testament the law the prophets the psalms uh judges all that stuff this is what he's reasoning with them about and uh when when i think of something like this and the idea of of reasoning and we'll, we'll parse that out in a second um because the word means simply, he made it plain to them. Uh, when we say reason, we're thinking about trying to solve riddles or do 
algebra or calculus problems or, you know, it requires some, some reasoning or some ciphering. When this word reasoned from the Greek, our English word is reasoned, it's a, it's a matter of setting things in its component parts out from themselves and displaying them such that you can see all the moving parts and understand how it's put together. Uh, think about watching some of your uh, shows that might involve, say, solving a crime or something. It wasn't long ago we were watching something as a family. It had something to do with Sherlock Holmes, and he's got this big old map on the wall with all these strings attaching things to each other with note cards explaining the connections, right? That's kind of what's going on here. Uh, when I was a kid, I was given a model of a Ford 289 engine with clear uh, block so you can see the cylinders move up and down. When you got it all built right, there were little lights that made the cylinders fire, all eight of them. You could see how the camshaft worked and so forth. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, but when I could see it and all its parts, I understood what happened when you crank the key. And when one stroke pushes the, the, the air and gasoline mixture and compresses it, right after that, the, the spark plug fires, ramming it down, which pushes another up. And you do this several thousand times a minute, you've got enough horsepower to get down the road. So for us to, to figure out what makes this help us be a better Christian, we've got to figure out what all the pieces are and how they work together. That's what he's doing. But he's doing it with the Old Testament for the purpose of showing them how Jesus fits into the whole thing. Paul took up the Scriptures, opened them, explained them, and did so by sequence of arrangement, laying out before them in relation to the parts thereof and what part arranges or attaches to another. In other words, how does the law attach to the prophets? And how would their prophets attach to the Psalms and so forth? So they've got a good lay of the land. And then look at verse 3. All of that to explain and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now what that is, is a typical teaching method of the culture that Paul lived in but one that didn't necessarily work well with those in the synagogue. They didn't reason quite like this. Now, this is the way I reason, and it's probably the way you reason. But in a typical teaching pattern of that culture, Paul is using a this is that method or argument. What he's doing is he's opening the Old Testament and saying, this is what all this means. And all these prophets in the Old Testament are pointing to a Messiah that they've been pointing to for thousands of years, complete with details as to what this guy will look like when you see him. Things that people couldn't have known because it's actually pre-written history, and they've been dead for hundreds of years, but when these things are fulfilled, they will identify who God has planned to be your Messiah. And then after he'd done a good job of that, he said, this Jesus of Nazareth that the Lord has explained to you by signs and wonders, all of which didn't happen in a corner. You know it. You were there. And then died on a Roman cross. And some of you saw that he rose again on the third day and walked around for a spell. 
And then there's these disciples that saw him ascend into heaven after he said, whatever I've taught you, you teach other people. That Jesus is the Old Testament's Messiah. That's basically his message. And you can't get a better formula for preaching, really, in all the New Testament. It's boiled down right there. Explain what it means, show how it fits together, and how the whole thing points to Jesus is the only way to heaven. And then you've understood your Bibles. So that's what he's doing for the people in Thessalonica. So how did it go? You go verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So some of them refers to the Jews that go to the synagogue. But there's also Greeks who were part of the synagogue too. He describes them too, great many of devout Greeks, a few of the leading women. So we don't want to read a lot into the little words that could be used to describe uh, unnumbered groups of people. But if you say some of them, I don't know, maybe you got a case for half, some. You could say most. Most would work better if it was more than half. Some kind of sounds like less than half. And then a great many of the devout Greeks. Sounds like that's the big group. And then a few of the leading women because not a lot of women went to the synagogue. Maybe that's why it's just a few of them. Be that as it may, let's keep going. What we've got here is a clear example of what we've got in every chapter in Acts. The Word of God keeps going out as His men are preaching it, and people come into the church as they believe it and are saved. If you notice that some were persuaded, if we're going to talk about the word reasoned, persuaded, means convinced of the truth by argument of the teacher. So they're buying what he's selling, though he's not selling it. He's just telling them the truth. That's not all that happened. If you look at verse 5, and we're almost to uh, Berea here, but the Jews were jealous. So that's the others of some of them. The Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, and that was in order to bring him out to the crowd. How many of you would like to be judged by a, a crowd, a mob, with their pitchforks and everything? No, I'd hide too. Good thing they didn't find them. But they did find Jason. How many of you did not know Jason was a biblical name? You know, when you look up Bible names to name kids who grow up in families who go to church, that's what happened to us. Um, it's what happened to my kids. We even named Benjamin Benjamin because usually Jews named the last one Benjamin. But we're, we still want a girl. We've got a name for a girl picked out. But we've got enough boys. Right? Never. The first charge against these men by the crowd, the mob... Uh, was in verse 6. We won't read it, but it's of revolution, having turned the world upside down. Now, that's the enemy speaking about God's men. They've turned the world upside down. Now, that's a negative term. If you go to lunch today and take your food as soon as they bring it to you and turn it upside down, it's not a good thing, right? All your food will be in the floor or on your table. That's a disaster. That's what they say they've done. They've turned everything upside down. It's all a mess. It's a wreck. A total waste. I like it, though. That's what I actually titled this year-plus series, Acts, Turning the World Upside Down. 
Let them think that until they're convinced of the truth. But these were the words of their enemies. This is what they said, revolution. But the central charge is that of high treason. They go on with this business of their preaching, claiming that there's another king. His name is Jesus. This is different. This will show you that these Jews will use whatever argument they need to get whatever they want. It's an underhanded argument. You know, when they're trying to get Pilate to crucify Jesus, they say, we have no king but Caesar. And now with this mob, they're saying, oh, we, we, they're preaching this other Jesus guy, same thing, we have no other king but Caesar. Now, for Jesus to say things of similar nature, referring to himself, they call blasphemy. Uh, it, 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 it's messy including using wicked men of the rabble. We don't know what that means other than just to assume they were for hire. Uh, rioters for hire, I suppose this is, is the best way to explain it. Um, but does it do any good? Well, we don't know much about this guy named Jason. He's probably a new convert. The only thing we know about him we find in this passage is the only place where he's mentioned. Uh, he had housed Paul and his men and was likely involved in their escape. And after they'd taken money, which was kind of like bail, I suppose, they let them go. But then in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, where they arrive. And what do they do? They went into a Jewish synagogue. Sounds like repeat. Um, what, second verse, same as the first? You don't know that song, Henry VIII? No, your parents didn't listen to oldies when you were a kid, did they? Listen to other stuff. Either that or your parents were younger or older than my kids, and it was different songs. What do they do in Berea? Well, they go to the synagogue, verse 10, but in verse 11, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. What things were so? The things that Paul was teaching. So yes, you have familiarity here. They go to the synagogue and that's where they start. But what is this business about these Jews? That has to mean they're different than those Jews in the previous city the day before. And they're more noble. What does it mean by noble? Because it's doubtful that Paul's process of preaching or teaching was any different. He doesn't have authorization to change the gospel. Now, he would change the way he'd go about it sometimes, right? But there's, there are two synagogues. It's, it, they're Jews. It's got to be the same. So it's not Paul that's different. It's these Jews that are more noble. And we don't think that that's a result of a change in teaching. So what was the difference? And why were they so noble? And for the most part, we're just asking the question, what does he mean by noble? Well, it says they received the word with all eagerness. So is that nobility? An eager reception of news? Not necessarily. Would it be noble to just receive any news from any person at any time, regardless of where it came from? And they got another word for that. That's naive. Right? Or gullible, as kids in sandbox call each other and laugh. So that, that can't be what nobility is. Well, what does Luke mean by noble? We want to, 
history in our brains think, okay, if, if, if over here on this side of the Atlantic we have a New England, then there's an Old England on the other side of the Atlantic, and we left Old England so that we could worship like we want to because we were sick and tired of everything being in the hands of a few. They called that the nobility, lords and ladies and so forth. And they even had a, a state religion in their pocket. They could exert incredible amounts of force with this. So is that what he's talking about? Because all that would be way, 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 way later. But don't let that, our history, cover up what's in this history. Well, we use our English word, but it sounds like he's not talking about the type of people because the gospel seems to be the great equalizer in all that he says. So it has to be a high-mindedness, a noble way of thinking, maybe a more educated, open mind, critical thinking with the ability to discriminate between what is of worth and what is not. They're sifters. Instead of just eating the whole thing, they say, well, what of this do I want to eat and what of it do I want to throw away? I had a pastor friend long ago hand me a book and said, like any other book, eat the meat and throw out the bones. Because I don't, I don't buy every word of every author. There's some good meat in here, but there's a bone or two. Don't choke on them. I think that might be getting at the idea here. It's not a aristocratic we're talking about. It's, it's, a, it's a higher mind, a noble mind. Uh, maybe my dad, when I was little, would have called him less hard-headed. He's called me and my brothers hard-headed sometimes. You ever called hard-headed? That means you have to learn something over and over again before it sticks, right? Um, so these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, receiving the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. So add that last part. It involves fact-checking. They're not going to buy what Paul's saying just because he's Paul. They're going to check it by the book that he's professing to teach and see if it works. G-Halls. You all know that term, don't you? Maybe. Maybe not. If you keep reading... Um, this examining the Scriptures daily to see things were so, they approached the Word of God by means of examination, which is another way of saying they were skeptical. And sometimes skeptics seen as, as, as a negative. But they were not going to take Paul's word for it. They wanted to see it for themselves to see if it matched with what he's saying. Along with their skepticism, which is caution, there's also an anxiety of sorts. That was their eagerness. Now, anxiety is a, a negative these days. That's something that bothers you. But it also could be something that you're antsy to get a move on with, not to let it sit or rest. There's some people that like to take their mail, find all the bills, and then hide them. Other people pay that stupid thing before we miss it, forget about it, or it's late, right? Two different ways to do that. One's the correct way. Pay it. You owe it, right? Don't forget it. It's not going to go away for long. So they're looking at this, mixing these two components. What we've got is what I've, I've read in commentaries as a noble listener. And this is different from what was going on in Thessalonica. They're listening, sifting, weighing, comparing, fact-checking, and are eager to do so. The other group, some of them believed, but most of them tore the town apart. 
So what can we learn between the difference of these two? Well, let's start with, uh, I don't know, using some definitions of words that were common to us. We use them all the time, maybe even as synonyms. But what is the difference between listening and hearing? There's a major difference between the two. They're associated with each other. Uh, One has to do with noise that's going on and our perception of it. Where the other is not just a perception of that noise, but an attempt to cipher it, to decode if it's words. Do those words make sentences? Do those sentences make paragraphs? Do those paragraphs make arguments? And your brain that God gave you is, is very good at governing the difference between what is just heard and what is listened to. Almost it does such a good job that you have to manually decide to pay attention. Now, there's all kinds of illustrations I could use for this. One, I think, is better than all the rest. But right now, if we get real quiet, you can hear the air condition. But until I said something about us, about it, most of us, though our brains are perceiving that little white noise, we're not paying attention to it or trying to figure out, is that the air condition? Or is that the wind? Or is the building going to fall on our heads? Or There's so many things that we would go crazy if we got all that input into our head. But then if you've focused on something, say a conversation, well, then your brain is decoding each of these words that you learned a long time ago, probably. And then hopefully you're trying to figure out if what I'm saying matches this book and if it's worth your time on a Sunday morning. That's listening. It's evaluating. It's fact-checking at times. But it's active where the other is kind of passive. Best illustration I know about this is what happens to a young mother who has her second child, third child. By the fourth child, she doesn't hear anything or she'd be dead. Listen, excuse me. She can't listen but so much. There's way too much stimuli coming in. So her brain has to... And this is terrible, but last night we were watching... Christmas videos from 1987. I was digging into the cabinet finding the Christmas stuff, you know, the good stuff. Um, And then I found the home videos that were recorded when I was nine. And we're watching myself, my sister, my brother Jacob. Joseph wasn't around yet. And we absolutely ignored my brother. He talked to us through the whole Christmas morning. I played with my toys. My sister played with her toys. My brother got absolutely no love. But there's something else going on in that video. He talked constantly. (laughs) And we just don't talk much. So a guy that talks constantly eventually is the air conditioner. (laughs) Right? It's just noise in the background. There are churches where the service is so monotonous and the teaching is so dry. It's just noise. Now, does that mean you're off the hook to pay attention? No. Does that mean that whoever's in charge of the service is going to catch it when they get to heaven and made a very dramatic book boring? Yes. But you still have to listen because it's God's word. You're still held accountable to pull out of it, to evaluate, to make sure these things are so. The Bereans teach us a lesson here. Um, The noble listener 
is not the man who immediately says yes to the interpretation of any preacher. The noble listener is the man who appeals again and again to the scriptures themselves to find out if these things that are being said by the preacher are true. This type of listening has as much to do with the heart as it has to do with the ears. And that's what I think we see right here with Luke's description of Berea. The absence of cautious, eager listening, a healthy, skeptical expectancy, without that, you're basically just taking someone else's word for this. That's bad. Any of y'all ever go to a buffet? Duh, yeah. They kind of fell on hard times the last couple of years. I got one down the street here. Got a bigger one down that way. I remember the first time I went to the buffet that I probably will forever judge all buffets by until I find one better, but I doubt I will. It's in Myrtle Beach. The original Benjamins. Have you ever been there? Original Benjamins? Now, I was looking last time we were at the beach because I was going to take my kids because I went and I got done looking it all up and I said, well, kids, if we're going to go, I've got to sell one of you. Because <laughs> inflation is killing these big fish houses at Myrtle Beach. But the place was huge. I mean, massive. But just imagine that because I mentioned this, Somebody down there hears it, and by next week this time, all of Wake Chapel gets a free lunch buffet at Original Benjamin's, and we're going to take the buses and go after church. Here's the point of the illustration. Would any of you let me take your plate and go through the buffet for you? Never. You don't know what I want. I might be allergic to this or that, but I'm going to double up on the crab legs. Get them all before somebody else does. We'd be like fighting, racing each other's bus to try to get there before the other. The church people are going to arrive. But you want to do that for yourself, don't you? Right. And then you're probably going to ask questions. Was this made with this or did that really come over here? Does that little net free thing with a dolphin really mean that no one ever died bringing me these crab legs? People have inquiring minds. They want to know. That's for your food. They haven't poisoned anybody yet, so even if I picked out your plate, you'd survive. But if you get this wrong, because I led you into error, because my heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, I can't know it and it'll lie to me and I'll be inclined to believe it. You get into big trouble not fact-checking your book. The book is the authority. And the preacher has authority in as much as he sticks with the book. If he turns to the right or the left, throw him out on his ear. And make sure everybody knows it. What are we talking about here? Which team is the best? Or life and death? No, this is life and death. There's no margin for error here. Your pastor's job is to give you something to think about. By taking this, spreading it out, drawing lines to what goes where, explaining it to you. But at the end of the day, that's, that's his job, to give you something to think about. You should never, ever, ever allow your preacher to do your thinking for you. No more than you'd give him your plate and say, go through the buffet for me. One seems ludicrous. The other's done every Sunday. 
in churches where they're trained. This guy's the professional. He knows what to say. Listen to him. It's fine and dandy. Now, culturally speaking, that was a lot worse. And now the whole culture around us thinks that I'm probably the biggest idiot in all of America to believe an old book and think that you want to hear me talk about it. But it's the foolishness of preaching that God said he's going to use to teach the world what he said in the company of those disciples, apostles, we call them in the New Testament. That's how we're going to spread the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's serious business. Good place to start asking ourselves, am I a good listener, a noble listener? Let me read you some quotes out of books having to do with not preaching, but listening to preaching. They actually write books on how to listen to preaching. Ken Ramey, Expository Listening. He says, Nothing creates a more explosive, electrifying, life-changing atmosphere within the church than when the lightning bolts from a spirit-empowered preacher hit the lightning rods of a spirit-illumined listener. It's, it's, it's both ways. This is just, I'll sound like Charlie Brown if it's not for someone on the other end receiving these things eagerly, checking them like the Bereans. This is Philip Ryken, How to Listen to a Sermon. Most churchgoers assume that the sermon starts when the pastor opens his mouth on Sunday. However, listening to a sermon actually starts the week before. It starts when the church prays for the minister, asking God to bless the time he spends studying the Bible. I would add, and give him time to do it. Most preachers don't have enough time to do what they're called to do. Um, They're no more busy than anybody else is busy these days, by the way. But as he prepares to preach, and in addition to helping the preacher... Our, the listeners, the congregation's prayers create in us, the listeners, a sense of expectancy for the ministry of God's Word. In other words, it's not like, all right, preacher man, let's see what you got. It's all right, God Almighty, show me what you've locked away in this book. And maybe if we've prayed this guy up, maybe he'll be able to turn it loose. And if that's the case, then we hear from God Almighty and Almighty God. This is one of the reasons, says Riken, that when it comes to preaching, congregations generally get what they pay for. He's not talking about the pastor's salary. He's talking about the investment of prayer front-running the sermon as to whether or not it means anything by the time they get it. When you go... So wherever you're going this Thursday, are you not going to be met by a heavenly smell as soon as you open the door? And then you get to eat it, right? Now, if you'd never smelled that smell all your life, it probably wouldn't mean as much. And doesn't this work in, in so many other circles? The things you learn for yourself are different than the things you do for you, that someone else does for you. If you've got, you know, the guts to go on YouTube and figure out how to change your tire, change it yourself when you can't get anybody to come get it. That's kind of, you might text that to somebody and say, look what I did. Or change your transmission. You know, you can go from there. But it, it requires you start somewhere, and then it requires that you learn some things. Same as with your relationships. 
Are they not more meaningful the longer you've been together and the more trouble you've been through? It's the same with our understanding of Scripture. So if, if, you, if I had a nickel for every time I heard somebody say, I'm not getting fed at church, I could go feed you at Original Benjamin's. When most of the time, really what they need to do is pray for that man that they say is not feeding them. And pray, read those passages he's going to be talking about before he talks about them. You might be shocked at how that stuff just tastes better. It's like being in the kitchen, part of the crew. I know what goes in it. I worked. There's love I mixed in it too, right? That stuff you'll eat Thursdays made with love, I would assume. So, what happens next? Verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica... Wait a minute, we're in Berea. You saw it, right? The Jews from Thessalonica, who tore the town up, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea. Also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent off Paul on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. They're getting better at getting the man out of Dodge before the problems rain down. But they, they know to do so because they've, they've seen this before. So here's your conclusion, and this is what we'll make of of these two paragraphs, two different locations, two different ways they received the Word. I believe this Word was taught the same way in both of them. But I think this is sufficient to understand and to give us what we need to obey, these two paragraphs. The first, the message to the Thessalonican church, first paragraph, verse 1 through uh, wherever we stop there, is a method for preaching. That's the highlight of that first paragraph, a method for preaching. What's the method? It was the same method for all time. The one work of the preacher is opening and explaining God's Word by means of displaying the components of the teaching of Scripture and then the presentation of Christ as fulfillment of all those passages. What you do is you open your Bible. First of all, you want to understand it in such a way that you can then obey it. And at some point in there, take that as a big, huge arrow and point it back to Jesus somehow, some way. He's the reason for all of this. Like Sally Lloyd-Jones says in her little children's Bible, every story whispers his name. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation, it's all about Jesus. Now, connecting those threads open one's mind to parts of the Scripture that seem, when you read through them in a year, to be absolutely throwaway. (laughs) What does this have to do with Jesus? It has a lot to do with Jesus. But you'll have to sift through it like these people in Berea. All right, if that's the first paragraph, the second paragraph, the one on Berea, is a method for listening. So you got a method for preaching They didn't do so good with it in Thessalonica, but they did a great job with it in Berea. Two things we can see. One, they listened, which means their minds were open. And two, they examined what they heard, which means their minds were cautious. An open cautiousness is the good recipe for listening and evaluating preachers. God have mercy on us if our minds are closed such that no new light can ever come in. 
You'll never listen to but the one guy you think is better than the rest of them and nobody else has anything to say. That's a closed mind. Or at the thought or hint of something you don't know yet. Oh, he's off in left field. He's with those guys that guy was talking about. Well, just pay attention. Cautiously have an open mind. But God have mercy many, many more times over if we open all the doors and windows to anything that claims to be light. It's even more dangerous. You believe anything. And that certainly can't be true. Here's the bottom line. At the end of your life, you'll stand before the Lord and answer for every sermon you ever heard. You will essentially be asked, how has your life changed to look more like me and less like you as a result of the thousands of times you've heard my word preached? My word's key. You could sit in a church and never hear God's word. Somebody sent me a clip the other day. I don't have Twitter, but if somebody sends me something, I can click through and it'll show it to me and then ask me to sign up. But it was a clip of a guy in a church behind a piano, and he was introducing a speaker who's going to be there next week. And this came out of his mouth. He said, now, this guy's good. He don't preach much Bible, but what he preaches is good. That's why it's on bad preacher clips. And he wasn't even the preacher. He was talking about a bad preacher. So what we learned today, good preaching, which is faithfulness to the word, and then good listening, which is an openly cautious examination of the truth claims of a man about the book of God. I think this is great. This is a marvelous addition to any Christian's toolkit. But you see what you have to do in order to get to that. You have to let the Word speak. You have to kind of look at the difference between many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So many of them therefore believed. But then you've got, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number. Both talk about Jews some of them in one passage, many of them in another, persuaded as if they were talked into it cerebrally. I didn't pronounce that right. You know what I mean. And then the others believed it, having verified it themselves. That weighs more, matters more. You'll hold on to that tighter. When the wind and the waves, we're going to sing about some of this stuff in a minute, start to swirl. One of them you'll hold tighter to. The other will probably be blown away as if it had never mattered anything to start with. If it's somebody else's theology, if it's somebody else's experience, if it's somebody else's anything, make this your own. It's God's Word. It lasts forever. With that said, let's just bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for your Word and we thank you for the sufficiency of your Word, that your Word's all we need. And that if we know enough of it, you'll equip us for every good work according to what Paul told Timothy. Lord, help us to understand it's not all done in a day. We don't need just weeks or months or years in church. We, we need a lifetime in church under the sound of your word. We need a lifetime worth of morning and evening in your word, perhaps at bedside. 
We need to teach your word to each other when we lie down, when we get up, when we walk in the way, like it says in Deuteronomy. We can't get too much. But Lord, would you give us, and you can give it to us, and we're asking for an open, cautious mind, heart, eyes, and especially ears to hear your voice but to be careful enough to make sure it's yours. Lord, may we pray for our men who stand in pulpits and those who will one day stand in pulpits. And Lord, may we lift them up to you so you'll fill them with your word and we'll be good enough to perceive it. Lord, we thank you for what you gave us. We're thankful how you feed us. Lord, may we be so thankful that we proclaim it, share it, bring others to hear it. And we ask all this in your precious and holy name. Amen.